0: Hi, so just a quick word before we begin. If you were unlucky enough to hear a political advertisement on on this show recently, I apologize. I've always asked that ads inserted into my show not be politically oriented in any way, but a couple slipped through and I asked them to be pulled as soon as I heard about them. If, If you hear something in the future that sounds political, please assume that I don't endorse it. Number one and then email me so I can notify the appropriate uh, entities and and ask for their removal. And if you don't want to hear any ads at all, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. All my episodes are there, and all ad-free. Cheers, and on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you back again. Uh, So our interview today is a little more lighthearted than usual. Lighthearted in the sense that no one gets killed. (laughs) And what could be a better summer story than one that involves baseball? Maybe I'm just a little excited because my Minnesota Twins are having a Decent season this year, above average, at least at the time of this recording. Uh, Anyway, I am very excited to talk today to Jack Bales. He retired in 2020 as a reference and humanities librarian emeritus after more than 40 years at the University of Mary Washington. Besides being a librarian, he is also a longtime writer and has published numerous works for books journals, magazines, literary encyclopedias, and newspapers. He is also a member of the Society for American Baseball Research and has written extensively about the Chicago Cubs. And speaking of the Chicago Cubs, the team serves as a backdrop for the book he is here to talk about. It is called The Chicago Cub Shot for Love, a showgirl's crime of passion in the 1932 World Series. Thanks so much for coming on.
2: Oh, Eric, I'm just delighted to be here. So thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So tell us about your passion for the Chicago Cubs. Where did it come from and how did it lead you to this story?
2: Oh, okay. Well, I grew up I've been in Fredericksburg, Virginia here as a librarian since 1980, but I grew up outside of Chicago in Aurora, Illinois, and I've enjoyed researching and writing for, for many years, and I retired in 2020, after, again, after more than 40 years as a librarian. And after I finished several books about literary figures, I wanted something entirely different to work on, and I, I'd followed the Cubs a bit while growing up. In fact, I've got a picture on my desk of me wearing a Cubs t-shirt at about age six or seven. Anyway, and after learning that little had been written about their early years before they were called the Cubs, I, I wrote a book called "Before They Were Their Cubs" that talked about the Cubs' years in the nineteenth century. And, and And while working on that book, I read about the, a particular shooting incident and a few Cubs histories when a a star shortstop was was shot by his former girlfriend. But the authors provided little besides a few cursory comments. and And the fact that uh, the Chicago Daily Tribune wrote about the 1932 Cubs that, quote, never before was a team beset with more irritating experiences apart from the playing of baseball. And number one on that list was the the shooting of Billy Jurgis by his spurned lover. And so I set out to find more about this entire dramatic confrontation that took place in Billy's hotel room in a hotel that is still Uh, standing. This was kind of hard to do because Bada changed her name. And and in the process, I used only original primary sources, like archival records, newspaper articles, court records, uh, a lot of other things. But I relied solely upon the original sources.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So the events in your book mostly take place in the summer of 1932. The Chicago Cubs were having a good season, right? Right. Uh, Some ups and downs but they were still managing to make a run right. for the National League Absolutely,
2: pennant. yes. Uh, so yeah, it was in the summer of 1932, and, and the Cubs were in the middle of, as you said, a real tight pennant race. And in, in early July, they were just a few games out of first place. And Cubs shortstop Billy Jurgis was their star shortstop at that time. And and manager Rogers Hornsby really thought the world of him. And he enjoyed spending his free time with a woman named Violet Popovich. She was an attractive, dark-haired former showgirl. Uh, He broke off the relationship, though, telling her he wanted to concentrate on baseball. And also, truth be told, he was young, single, good-looking. And he said in a later interview that, you know, I wanted to have a good time, too. And I think that's another reason why he broke up with her. Uh, anyway, she did not take it particularly well. Now, at that time, some of the players stayed at the Hotel Carlos, which was just a, a few a couple of blocks north of Wrigley Field on Sheffield Avenue. Uh, it's still there today. It's been remodeled as a uh, as a condominium for uh, uh, for young single professionals. And about 9:45 in the morning of July 6, Billy was getting ready for a game with the Philadelphia Phillies, which the Cubs won, by the way, six to one. When Boddet called him from her own room, which is room 111, she was in room five oh He was in room 509, and said that she wanted to see him. And he told her, to, "You know, come on up." And about 10:15 in the morning, she knocked on his door again, room 509. Uh, they resumed arguing. Uh, she asked him for a glass of water while he went to get it. She pulled a gun out of her purse and pointed it at him. They struggled. And as they say in the movies, three shots rang out, (laughs) wounding them both, but but not real seriously. Uh, uh, One bullet struck him in the right side, ricocheted off a rib, came out his right shoulder. Another grazed a little finger of his left hand. And the third bullet hit Bada's left hand at about the base of her thumb and went up her arm about six inches. And both of them were taken to the nearby Illinois Masonic Hospital.
0: And some of his fellow teammates. Uh, who are also living there, heard the gunshots, right?
2: Yes, they heard the gunshots and they came up. They heard the gunshots and they came running up. Uh, and I, I came across an interview with with Billy in which uh, uh, I said that, and, and, a, and a dramatic newspaper article. In fact, I went through all of the Chicago newspapers. I think there were seven or eight of them, page by page by page. You know, Because people think, all this is online. Well, it's not online. These early newspapers were not online. The Chicago Tribune was, and that was about it. So I got them all on microfilm and spent years going through every single paper, page by page by page. And uh, one interview, a, a marvelous interview, I think it was the Chicago Daily News, said that they they ran up, they ran into the into the room, and there was Billy lying on the floor with Violet on top of him. And he said something like, "Get her off of me! Get the gun! Throw it in the other room," uh, which they did. And, uh, as I recall, I think Violet got up screaming and then kind of left the room as as best she could. Uh, but then the, the two ball players went and found the team doctor who happened to be at the, at the, uh, hotel right then. He, uh, he, he brought him up and looked at Billy, said he'd be do, he, he'd do fine. Miraculously, one of the bullets that, uh, uh, went through the right side and ricocheted off a rib because it ricocheted off a rib that undoubtedly saved his life. The doctor said if it had gone and, and got inside, it would have hit a vital organ and he would have been, you know, history. And Violet wasn't particularly hurt either, just went up her left hand a bit. In fact, in my book, you can see pictures of her wearing a kind of a cast or a big bandage uh, on her arm. But Billy uh, went to the hospital, Violet went to the hospital. In fact, uh, that was July 6th. Uh, and by uh, July 22nd, he was back on the field. Of course, a lot happened after that, though. Too after the shooting.
0: Right, right. Billy wasn't the only target that day, right? There was another player.
2: Yeah, that was a uh, Kai Kai Kyler, the the Hall of Famer, uh, and he denied all these newspaper articles. Uh, He denied having anything to do with Violet, but she said that uh, he he most certainly did have something to do with it because, uh, 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 by the way, she left a letter in her hotel room saying something like, uh, without Billy, life is not worth living, but no way am I going to leave this world alone. I'm going to take Billy with me. And, uh, and she later referred to, uh, the busybodies who got themselves and, and her and Billy's business. I guess Kai Kai Kyler told Billy they ought to stick to baseball, leave the romancing alone. And that probably had something to do with Billy breaking it off too. But later, some, uh, some, some reports say that, uh, she went gunning for, uh, for, for Kai Kai Kyler first. And, and Billy was an afterthought. I could not verify that in too many newspaper articles. Though I mentioned it in my book, but I, I I could not I could not really really definitely verify that. But I suspect it was probably true.
0: So this relationship between Billy and Violet, they had been dating on and off, as you've said. Uh, Billy was young, and interested in sowing his wild oats. Yeah, <laughs> as they say. Absolutely. <laughs> But the argument the day of the shooting, he told her he wanted out of their relationship so he could focus on the pennant race, correct?
2: Right. He sure did. Yes, absolutely. That, that was his main impetus, Erica. Uh, emphasis. He wanted to focus on the pennant race. Uh, they had met at a party uh, in, I think it was the fall of 1931. As she said later in an interview, said, uh, I met Bill. Bill at a party, and if it wasn't love at first sight, it was certainly second. But I think in, in Billy's mind, it wasn't even second. You know, he, he enjoyed her company. As he said later on, she, she was young, she was beautiful, and she was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, and naturally, uh, uh, he enjoyed spending time with her. She was young and vivacious. She was good company. But, you know, he was young and wanted to, pl- wanted to you know, date other people, and he really wanted to concentrate on baseball. As he told it. quote, we've got a chance to win the pennant, unquote.
0: And she had kind of a thing for professional athletes.
2: Oh yeah, uh, I guess now you call them a, a, a groupie or, what, or whatever. But uh, uh, she went out with uh, Leo Drosher, who's manager of the Cubs, and uh, she went out with Al Lopez uh, uh, too. In fact, both of them. And then later, she went back. She went back to Al Lopez. Dagbala's nephew helped me a lot with my research and gave me a lot of photographs. For the book, and he and he went to a game with Violet and uh, and Al Lopez with a White Sox game. Al Lope, uh, Al Lopez was managing the White Sox at that time, and they went to see a game, and and uh, and the manager Al Lopez went up to the stands and brought brought his nephew an autographed ball. In fact, I uh, I tell people here's a tri- baseball trivia question: What former showgirl was dating the two? Hall of Fame managers for the Chicago for the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox, not necessarily at the same time, but but she had dated both of them. But yeah, she liked baseball players. In fact, uh, Al, interestingly enough, I found a reference to Al Lopez back in the 30s where he warned uh, Billy that uh, that Violet kind of liked to play around, and you know maybe he should concentrate more on baseball.
0: And she had been romantically involved with. Kai Kai Kyler as well, right?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, he denied it, but she he certainly did uh, see Kai Kai Kyler. And this was verified with an interview with Billy uh, and even a later interview with Billy. And I think 1988, he talked about that. He said Billy, he said that Kai Kai Kyler, even though he was married, was a real ladies man. Uh, Violet now, in an interview I read, said that when she found out that Kai Kai Kyler was married, uh, he called. she called it off with him.
0: And Kai Kai Kyler and some other teammates had been <laughs> poisoning.
2: Yeah, they were poisoning the well, so to speak. They certainly were. Uh, he and a couple other people, they, they told Billy, in fact, Kai Kai Kyler is, was quoted as saying something like, uh, all I did was tell Billy to stick to baseball and he would be a star. But yeah, he's, he was certainly warning her off. He was the main person warning warning Billy off. Of course, maybe that was sour grapes in his part, too, because they had been going out, to, out together and she called it off because he was married. So I guess we'll never know.
0: So if you don't mind, give us a little backstory on both Violet and Billy. Sure. Uh, Billy was a New York kid, uh, and if you could include his story about how he made it to the major leagues.
2: Yeah, he was uh, born in, in 1908, uh, as I recall, and uh, he always wanted to play baseball. His father said in an interview one time that, you know, from the age of, you know, from just a young kid, like two or three or four or whatever, all he wanted to do was play baseball. And at age 17, he played for the for a semi pro uh, uh, team in, uh, I think it was called South Ozone Park, which is a neighborhood in in Queens. And, uh, and as luck would have it, the umpire there, Dick Meehan, knew a uh, a former New York Giants second baseman, Billy Gilbert, who was a scout for the Newark, New Jersey Bears of the International League, so so Billy signed a contract with the Bears, and they assigned him to play for the New Eng- New England League's Manchester Blue Sox in New Hampshire to gain experience. I think he batted two fifty five for the Blue Sox in 1927 and, and three thirty two in 1928. And in 1928, he was chosen the Most Valuable Player, and a baseball scouts had seen him play, and he recommended him to the Chicago Cubs. Who bought him for five thousand dollars, and he played for the Double A team called the Reading, Pennsylvania Keystone's, and he played for them in 1929 and 1930, 30, and 1931. He worked out with the Cubs during spring training on Santa Catalina Island, which was a resort area in the Pacific, just off the coast of Southern California, and uh, his first game was, I think, on in May, sometime in 1931. Uh, he did pretty well. And, uh, and after the Cubs shortstop, Woody English fractured his right finger, and in March 32, Billy took over his duties, and uh, and Woody moved over to, to third base, and that's how it all started. Now, with Violet, though, boy, you know, uh, and there's a, a nice picture of Violet in my in my book, Eric, with her sitting in the doorway, and she looks real, real sweet and innocent, and you can't help but feeling sorry for her, and I, and I spent a lot of time talking to the Cubs historian, Ed Hartig, about this. And we both agreed that, you know, all all Violet wanted was a, a a nice, stable relationship and a home in the suburbs with a white picket fence, you know, 2.4 kids and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and that's all that she really wanted. But as Ed said, you know, if it weren't for her falling for Billy, she would have fallen for somebody else too. But anyway, what I'm getting at is her childhood was not all that great. Uh, her father was a man named... Mirko later changed his name to Mike Popovic, later changed his name to Popovic. He was an Austrian immigrant who came to Ellis Island in 1907. He was an electrician, moved to Chicago, and in 1910 he married a woman named Margaret Heindel, also from Austria. Uh, They had four children, of which Violet was the oldest, but you know, the marriage was not at all a happy one. And uh, I found some neat court records in Chicago. Uh, when Violet was only 10 days old, her father began beating his wife, giving her black and blue eyes. Uh, the couple got divorced in 1920 on the grounds of, quote, extreme and he repeated cruelty. In fact, eight-year-old Violet even had to testify at the divorce here. You know, what kind of, you know, that kind of had to have some effect on, on her. Um, child support was slow in coming, even though, uh, Mike had a good salary. And, and so for a few years, Bala and her three brothers had to stay in the Ulick Children's Home in Chicago, run by the Lutheran Church. Uh, Violet said in interviews that when she was eight, uh, that she was married when she was 18, but that it was a very un- a short marriage. And, uh, as I recall, she said something like, uh, quote, I was unhappily married at 18, one of those puppy love affairs with a schoolboy. I never lived with him and we were divorced six months later. Then she enrolled in a, in a dancing school. She joined the chorus of a Chicago production of Vanities, uh, an annual musical produced by the New Yorker Earl Carroll, a real, a real very famous showman at that time. He, he had this show called Vanities and this motto was uh, at the, uh, at his place in New York. Uh, he said that the quote through these portals passed the most beautiful girls uh, in the world. And as I said, in, that was in uh, 1930 and 1931. Early 1931, she dated the married Kaikai Kai Kyler. Uh, she left him. And then, as I said, she met Billy Jurgis later on in 1931. Interesting, in fact, yeah. In fact, in that letter I mentioned, she said something like, uh, Gossips began to cast aspersions and on my character, and I could see that Billy's ardor was waning, which was a great line, I thought. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then a uh, year later, the two of them had their dramatic meeting at the Hotel Carlos.
0: So Violet is escorted to the police station and she's pretty obviously the shooter.
2: Well, yeah. And and that's just uh, an incredible, incredible story right there. Now, right after the shooting, the the police searched Violet's hotel room, and and I found a note addressed to her brother, like I said, and to me, life without Billy isn't worth living, but why should I leave this earth alone? I'm going to take Billy with me. But she later said that the note was the result of, quote, too much gin, and that she only wanted to kill herself to show Billy just how much she loved him and to make him sorry for breaking up with her. In fact, uh, she said in an interview that when Billy was out of the room getting her a, a glass of water, quote, I pulled out my revolver intending to kill myself. Bill saw me and lunged for the gun. We fought for it. We really fought for it. The gun kept exploding and I didn't really want to hurt him. And I found out that the judge in this case, because you know, Violet was arrested and booked on a charge with a sent to kill, and the whole arraignment was on July fifteenth. Okay, he got shot on July sixth. The arraignment was July fifteenth, but Billy refused to press charges. The Cubs wanted it all to go away. Billy wanted to go it all the In fact, the judge uh, named John Sabarbaro, he 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 ran a funeral business, by the way, that catered to gangsters. And as one person, one Al Capone biographer put it, when he wasn't putting them in jail, he was putting them in coffins. But uh, he asked Billy beforehand, you know, hey, Bill, what do you want me to do? He said, ah, oh, just forget it, you know, which is what happened. Uh, he refused to press charges. Uh, he, he In fact, he said that she shot him accidentally and only meant to shoot, her, shoot herself and he wanted to begin the whole thing. What I got a kick out of, Eric, the whole story was front page news. And I love the way they referred to Vada as the, like, let's see, there was the the dark-haired former chorus girl, uh, the pretty gun toter, uh, the 21-year-old comely brunette, and the raven trust beauty as well. <laughs> and uh, and on the day of the arraignment, now this is July 15th. I, the newspapers wrote all these flowery descriptions of the whole event. It was just marvelous. I've got a, a nice photograph on the cover of my book and inside of, of Violet and Billy in, the, in John Sabarbara's courtroom. And the Daily Illustrated Times wrote that she, quote, was a symphony in red and white with her red earrings, her red shoes, and her red striped trimmings on her white crepe sports dress exactly matching her shade of lipstick.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Quite a striking image there, yes. We'll be back in a moment.
1: The storm broke
0: in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds,
1: the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon.
2: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
1: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? cat and jethro box of oddities that is really mysterious join cat and jethro gilligan toth for the strange the bizarre the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities the webby award-winning box of oddities podcast from airwave media hi i'm matt albers host of the pirate history podcast the men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
0: And we have returned. Yeah, uh, despite the fact that Billy didn't want to press charges, the police were still intent on investigating the shooting. Oh yes, and they talked to residents of the building, right? Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, there was a. She had this mysterious girlfriend. The newspapers all reported, and I managed to track down what I think was the mysterious girlfriend, her her stepsister, who was kind of the. As one of Chicago historian told me, you know, she kind of led Violet astray. But yeah, they were—they had a gun and they were doing target practice uh, in back of the motel and an alley in back of the motel. And uh, purportedly, Billy was getting uh, letters or maybe it was telegrams from somebody else. And and when Violet heard about it, she said uh, that she was going to uh, uh, question Billy about this. And I think she said something like, "If uh, he did not, if he." Denies that that's okay, but if he affirms it, I'm going to give him the works. Uh, so there was definitely some pl- there was some pre-planning here. You know, there was shooting was definitely a forethought and everything because the Chicago newspapers all reported on this. In fact, Billy was urged to get out of town. He said, "Oh no, nothing's going to happen."
0: It was also alleged that Violet left a note on Kai Kai Kyler's mirror.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, something like, I'm going to kill you, I think it was, yeah. Uh, and that was, Billy said that in an interview in 1988, and, uh, but I could not find any contemporary art- articles about that, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, he, uh, he mentioned it in a, in a, in a, in a book of, uh, of interviews edited by Jerome Holzman, the national baseball uh, historian at that time. Uh, but yes, he, he did say that, and uh, he was interviewed as I said in 1988. I wish I could I found some contemporary sources about that. But but Eric, you know, I mean, you can't. As people say, you can't make this stuff up. So you know, Billy went back to to the baseball field and on July on July 22nd, and I think he hit a single that day. I think one newspaper said he was calling the uh, Violet celebrated revolver target, and he bowed himself back into back into the field with a single to center. But uh, on the same day, newspapers reported on Billy's return to the baseball field, and that that was on the newspaper said this on July twenty third. Violet herself returned to the stage as a singer in an act called the Bear Cub Follies, And we're not t- talking B-E-A-R either. Uh, when, <laughs> after the, the arraignment and, and everything was dropped, uh, Bollett said, all I want to do is stay home. I'm going to forget about Billy and stay home and be with my mother. Well, that didn't last too long because that was on July 6th. And soon after, Bollett signed this, signed this contract. And, and management did its part to attract an audience by booking some, quote, bear cub girls as their op- opening act. And uh, I said, I said, Eric, I went through all these newspapers trying to find these original sources. And I kept on thinking to myself, I'd love to find a review of her show. I want to find a review of her show. You know, what went on at, at, at a typical burlesque show? And, and In fact, uh, my staff, you know, the, the staff in the library where I work, they were really getting into this. And uh, so I checked out all these books on burlesque, but I was kind of embarrassed about it. So I didn't want to go to a student aide at the desk. So I... Kind of, I kind of asked one of my colleagues, you know, you know, can you check these books out for me for my book? And they got the biggest kick out of that <laughs> and everything. Uh, but anyway, and so I and I got a, a variety of different things. But I really wanted to find a review, and, and in the Chicago Daily News, I found this great review written by a, a man who was a very well-known reviewer of the time. And Off the top of my head, I can't think of his name, but. Uh, he was an amateur historian. He hobnobbed with Carl Sandburg. His house was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's now an uh, Illinois State Historic Landmark. Uh, he, and his papers are at the, the famous Newberry Library uh, in Chicago. And he wrote a marvelous review on, on Violet's act. I reprinted the whole review in my book. And he said that the degree of nudity, depended on, the, on a burlesque show, depended upon the applause each person got. And when Violet went up to sing, the place was fairly crowded because people wanted her to take off her clothes, but you know she didn't. All she did was 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 sing, and he said she had a good voice, you no know, kind of so so, but not particularly spectacular, and when it was over, these stage hands and undershirts were out of there, the other chorus girls were out of there all looking to see Bada take off her clothes, and all she did was bow and quote without a single gesture of salaciousness. <sighs> <laughs> uh, but uh, her show folded after a few weeks, and I, and I asked Vada's nephew about this. You know, it was supposed to run all over Chicago for at least six weeks, and he told me that his aunt liked to sing, but he said, quote, that is, she tried to sing. So I guess she wasn't <laughs> uh, particular, particularly good. But you know, she was back in the news again, and in Judge, Judge Sabarborough's courtroom, after a bail bondsman, who was a, a part-time real estate agent, full-time hustler and con man, he stole her Billy Jurgis love letters, and there were some Kai Kai Kyler love letters in there, too, saying he wanted to publish them under the title, Love Letters of a Shortstop" and sell copies at ballparks all around the country. Uh, Violet had to go to court. Uh, eventually, all this was settled. You know, Violet got her love letters back, and she got a job as a singer at a cocktail lounge in Chicago, and she began seeing another man named Fred Williams who worked in the office of his father's hardware factory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting story. Uh, the judge in that case was very much on her side. Yes. Because he didn't want Billy Jurgis embarrassed.
2: Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. He said something like anything to not embarrass the Cubs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, and even though she was in the news For shooting Jurgis, she was purportedly in the stands watching firsthand his return to baseball.
2: Absolutely. She was in the stands watching him. I think the paper at that time uh, mentioned that story and called Billy, quote, uh, her favorite revolver target. You know, she just watched him intently the whole time and everything. And the the papers did report report on that. Uh, And that was right before he started playing himself. I think it was allowed to... Go back and watch the team play a few days after he got shot. But he wasn't allowed to play, but Bollit happened to be at that game uh, too, and uh, she just watched him the whole time. I forgot to mention Eric that you know when she was on the stage, she billed herself as quote the girl who shot for love. And that was her, you know, th- that was how she built herself, and that was in newspaper uh, articles too at that time. You know, newspaper ads at that time for her show. In fact, I reprint one uh, in my book. I got from a chicago newspaper a marvelous marvelous ad that uh, that showed her and uh, uh showed a headshot with her and you know talking about her forthcoming burlesque act it was like a a quarter page ad i think it was the chicago chicago examiner might might have been the name of the newspaper so uh uh it was just a it was just a lot of a lot of fun i got a big kick out of doing doing all this oh yeah yeah i've got the reviewer here in front of me uh it says, Burlesque with Violet Valley. Valley was her stage name. And it says, The girl who shot for love in the Bear Cub Follies. And it mentions, and her Bear Cub girls in the greatest burlesque show ever presented.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which closed uh, very shortly after it opened. Which yeah, closed
2: very shortly. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. Yeah.
0: So while all of this is happening, there is a, a bit of tumult and controversy going on within the Cubs organization. And it has everything to do with their manager, Rogers Hornsby.
2: Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now, again, Billy rejoined the team on July 22nd. And after their loss to Pittsburgh that day, they found themselves, you know, three and a half games behind the league leading Pirates. And now they were just about almost in first place and they weren't doing too well. And everyone was under a lot of stress. You know, Billy had been out of it. And comments within the Cubs organization centered on the obvious, obvious bad blood and all this animosity between the Cubs president uh, William Beck and the team's talented but you know rather disagreeable and hard to get along with manager Rogers Hornsby. Uh, in fact, Billy Herman, second baseman Billy Herman, later a Hall of Famer, he made the comment that you know Hornsby was probably the greatest right-handed. Uh, batter of all time, but he never taught. He said, "Quote, but he never talked batting with us. He just expected you to go up there and do it." Uh, the Chicago Daily News had created an uproar with his un rather unfounded charges of horseface gambling among the players, and they had to settle that. Uh, and 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 Beck and I, and I mentioned the Chicago I mentioned the Chicago Tribune early on in my talk about how never before was a team beset with more irritating experiences apart from the playing the baseball. And, you know, there's, there was Billy Jurgis getting shot. There was an, uh, animosity between the Bill, William Beck, father of, of Bill Beck, the famous showman and, uh, and baseball manager, and uh, and all the problems with Rogers Hornsby, and then this gambling too. See, there's a slew of things not, not going right. But anyway, Beck believed that the team was easily good enough to win the National League pennant, and he was right. Uh, and he was really growing tired of Hornsby's constant complaining about the men and their alleged shortcomings, and the players too had really little use for Hornsby. Uh, and things continued to get worse, and a loss to the Brooklyn Dodgers on August second put the Cubs five games five games behind the first place Pirates. And that evening, William Beck fired Hornsby and appointed as manager the very popular first baseman. And team captain Charlie Grimm, and in fact, people call him Jolly Charlie with good reason. As Billy Herman said, something like, uh, "You know, it was a, it was a very good move." And uh, on field, on the field, he was boss, but off the field, he was just an ordinary guy and kept things loose, you know. And and, and did a good job motivating the players. But that, all this leads to the, the call shot. You want me to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. And th- and 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 uh, and and this, the call shot. Uh, this arguably one of the most famous, well not, I would say unarguably one of the uh, baseball's most famous home runs. And so like I mentioned Cub President William Beck, and he was really concerned about, naturally about Billy's recovery right after the shooting. And moreover, there was also the loss of Rogers Hornsby. He got fired. So he brought in infielder Mark Kennig to help out. He used to play with the Yankees and he proved to be an excellent choice as he helped the Cubs clinch the National League pennant on September 20th. But the thing is, now, each team would get a share of the World Series gate receipts, and the players got to vote on how much each person got. But it had to be unanimous. Uh, and, and two Cubs players, uh, Billy Jurgis was one of them, and, and it, w- it was not known at the time, but I later found out it was Billy Jurgis and Billy Herman, whom I mentioned before. They voted not to give Mark Kennig a full share as he played in just the last part of the season, 33 games. I think Billy and others played in about 153 games, maybe 154 games. No, no, no. I think he, it was over 100, maybe 115. I so said there were 154 games total. I think Billy played in 115. And Mark Kennig played in only 33. But really, Eric, he, and even the players, uh, Woody English, I remember reading about him. The uh, He, third baseman Woody English, he he said that definitely Mark Kennig helped them win the National League pennant. He wasn't sure they could have won it without him. But anyway, uh, as famed Washington Post sports writer Shirley Povich wrote, and Shirley Povich was a guy, uh, father of the talk show guy, uh, Maury Povich, one of the most famous sports writers of the time. He wrote, quote, the Cubs' stinginess fired the Yankees to new heights. And so they started bad-mouthing the Cubs. There's all this animosity between them, all what they call uh, uh, bench jockeying between them. Uh, Babe Ruth says something like, I hope we beat them in four straight They gave my friend Mark Kennig a sour deal on his player cut. They're chiselers, and I tell them so. So the Cubs were down two games to none in the World Series when Game 3 was played in Chicago. There were all these insults flying back and forth. The Chicago crowd was screaming encouragement at the Cubs. They were screaming abuse at the Yankees. And in the fifth inning, with the score tied 4-4, to Ruth was at the plate facing pitcher Charlie Root with the count of two balls and two strikes. And Babe Ruth raised two fingers of his right hand and and did he signal that, that was only two strikes did he gesture contemptuously to the cubs in the third base dugout or did he gesture to uh pitcher Charlie root or did he point to center field as if to signal that he was going to hit a home run that is did he you know call his shot in any case he did hit a blistering home run and Babe Ruth's home run was followed by a home run by Lou Gehrig, which, of course, is not nearly as well-remembered as uh, Ruth's is today. Uh, the Cubs ended up losing that game, 7-5, to and the following game, too. And the thoroughly demoralized Cubs lost the whole World Series to the New York Yankees four games in a row, just as Babe Ruth had hoped. I mean, the Cubs did not even win one single game. But if I could say one more thing, interesting enough, though, you know, you have Cub fans that say and, and Cub players who say that he did not point, And you've got Yankees saying, players saying he did point. And i know expert on that. In fact, two books have been written on this one home run call. They both called the call shot. And I corresponded with both of them. I mean, so we have two entire books had been written on that hit. But what I found out, and I'm not sure if this was covered in their book, but but. The feelings did not fall along partisan lines. I found Cub players who said absolutely he pointed, and uh, in fact, Woody uh, uh, Guy—I think it was Guy Bush—saying he did point. Uh, I think it was player, uh, and and he was Guy Bush was the, the pitcher, and he was in the dugout at that time. He said, "Of course he pointed. I saw." it. And then I found New York Yankees players who said, oh, "Of course he didn't point." You know, everybody. In fact, everybody knows that Charlie Root. The pitcher Charlie Root was one mean son of a gun, and he would have nailed Babe Booth to the to the to the ground with a pitch uh, if he had dared to show him up by pointing to to the center field. And of course, he didn't point. So I found Cubs players saying he did, and Yankees players saying he didn't. That uh, that this was just uh, uh, a sports writer named Joe Williams had a had an article, in the, in the next day's New York. A paper saying in the headline saying something like ruth called his shot and 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 some people believe that's where it all got picked up but anyway they said the other players saying that they just kept quiet knowing it was a good story but but on the other hand a cubs players saying that you know uh, of course he pointed and the 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 field announcer at the time pat piper who played decades as a field announcer for the cubs he maintained all his life that 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 Babe Ruth pointed, and of course I maintain, Eric. You know, does it really matter? No one except Babe Ruth could have just, you know, brought one pitch into the field of of American culture. You know, he had he had the charisma, he had the strength, he just had this presence about him that would change one pitch into American culture. You know, so and even the even uh, uh, Charlie Grimm acknowledged that later on. You know, only one man could have made who could have hit. Hit that pitch and 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 cause it to be remembered uh, for decades afterwards.
0: You write in your book that Babe Ruth was reported to have told his teammates in the clubhouse right after the game. He 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 said, "Of course I didn't point. Do you think I'm an idiot?" <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, he said. Yeah, he said. Uh, Do you think I'm an idiot with a bear? He said, "With a barracuda like root on the mound." He said, "I would have been picking that." Uh, ball out of my ear with a pair of tweezers uh and Charlie Root of course uh went to his grave you know saying that maintaining that he did not point he was offered a large sum of money to play himself in the rather awful William Bendix movie called the Babe Ruth story and he said absolutely not not if you're going to show him pointing one of my favorite things I learned was uh, a Charlie Root biographer said in his book that uh one time, the Charlie Root family, you know, uh, his his son and his son's wife and his wa- and his wife were all playing wiffle ball and Charlie Root was pitching. And Charlie Root Jr.'s uh, wife made the mistake of holding up her wiffle ball bat and <laughs> pointing to center field. You know, Charlie wound up and just nailed her on the neck as hard as he could with a wiffle ball knocking her to the ground, you know. <laughs> I mean, he didn't mess with Charlie Root when it came to the call shot. And one time, some rookie player Made the mistake of pointing him with his with his bat to uh, center field, and Charlie Root just took ball after ball after ball, hitting him with it. You know,
0: wasn't he reported as as kind of ruefully saying at the end of his life, he had this amazing career, but it was all negated because this was what he would go down in history for.
2: Yes, yes, he told his he told his daughter just a couple of days before his uh, his death. I think it was something like, a, I I gave my entire life to baseball and I'll be remembered for something that never happened, which I thought, you know, was kind of dramatic there too.
0: Back in a jiffy. When Johann Rawl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we've returned once more. So I'd like to ask you about the alleged connection between this story and the and the novel and movie of the same name, The Natural.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure thing. Yeah. um, uh, In 1949, there was a woman named, and, and I'd spent a lot of time researching this too, which I'll, you gotta, you'll get a kick out of. In 1949, 19-year-old Chicagoan Ruth Ann Steinhagen, she was obsessed with former Cub and then Philadelphia Philly Eddie Wakas. Well, no, and in fact, she learned Lithu. She tried to learn Lithuanian because he was of Lithuanian ancestry. She had a shrine to Eddie Wakas in her in her bedroom. Anyway, she she shot him in his room at Chicago's Edgewater Beach Hotel in 1949. But ironically, uh, Eddie and Billy had played together for two years, and 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 Bill and Eddie had hit a double in Billy's last game on September 9th, 1947. And uh, I like to think, you know, one of those two ever compared notes. Well, Billy could say, well, I was shot three times and Eddie, was, you were only shot one time. Though admittedly, Eddie's shot was was much worse and he was in the hospital for a long time. And it really affected him his whole life. And I came across online an article with, uh, or a post by his son. I was, I think he's in a In Denver, and he pointed out he had a lot of resentment toward toward Ruth Ann Steinhagen because uh, she really wrecked his father his father's entire life with with that with that bullet. But anyway, author Bernard Malamud never mentioned either of the shootings, but it seems likely that one or both of them inspired him to include a passage. In his 1952 novel, The Natural, in which a woman shoots ball player Roy Hobbs. And of course, that was made into the famous motion picture. I think it was 1984 with, uh, with Robert Redford. And that, and of course, the story and, and the, and the movie and the whole incident live on thanks to that, that movie. And I, I tried to get a hold of Ruth, Ruth Steinhagen. I had her address. I had her phone number. I wrote her several times. I'm not surprised she never she never wrote back. but there was an Eddie Wakes biographer, and I read that uh, you know he he uh, went by and talked to a woman on the front porch. but as he knew and as I knew that he he uh, she lived with her sister in the house, and the biographer did not know whether he was talking to Ruth or whether he was talking to uh, the sister. and uh, ironically,, uh, I think she was 2012. She might have died. I can't remember now. But she, 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 when she died, the the death went largely unnoticed for a couple of weeks until some reporter noticed that, hey, you know, the guy, the woman who shot Eddie Wake has died about a week ago, and there were, there were all these stories in the papers about them. Uh, sh- she was found not guilty by reason and insanity, I guess, and she was later spent a, a few years in a. In a hospital, a mental hospital. And I have a transcript or I have a big article written about the case in a psychology journal. Uh, I was interested in, in kind of writing a little bit about that, but uh, the Eddie Wakis book does a good job. But, you know, later on, I, I may get to that at some point. Because I think it would be a fascinating story. And I've got all sorts of good wire photos about it too, and uh, about the incident too. But it was just a remarkable coincidence. And again, I can't help but wonder if, if Eddie and Billy ever got together and compared notes about it all. Right, right. Can I can I wait, say something about about, uh, about the rest of Violet's career too?
0: Oh, please, yeah, oh
2: yeah. Um you no, know, after uh, Violet was dating this guy, and uh, uh, I mentioned a guy named Fred Williams. After the shooting, I think in the late '30s, they 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 had they. I I tracked down a marriage uh, 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 license. That's what I mean, the marriage license. But they never did marry, and they eventually broke up. But but about 1939. She and her mother, Margaret Heindel, had moved from Chicago. They settled in Los Angeles. And she always considered herself a professional singer. And she had all these photographs taken of herself to try to get back on the stage. I print some of, the, of, of those in the book. There's one of the Violet wearing these hot pants and this cape across her shoulders. which I thought was just kind of really hilarious as one of her and a dog and everything. All these promotional photographs. Uh, unfortunately, she never really made it back on the stage she may have gotten some gigs here and there, but uh, she never really had a career. Um, she was a city person, and her 1947 marriage to Charlie Retzlaff, who was a prize fighter from Duluth, Minnesota, was probably doomed from the start. He was known as the Duluth Dynamiter, and was regarded as a good fighter until he met a young boxer named Joe Lewis in 1936, who knocked him out in the first round. I think it was the next year Joe Lewis was a heavyweight, crowned the heavyweight champion of, of the world. and but Violet was not at a loss for companionship, and Violet's uh, nephew told told me that, you know, the movie star John Wayne uh, tried to pick her up at a uh, club or a bar, or restaurant or whatever, right near uh, Paramount Studios, where Violet worked in the color film department. And uh, let me say that John Wayne did not take his marriage vows particularly seriously, and as, as the biographies point this out. And he wanted to get home, take Violet home, and get comfortable for a while. But Violet's nephew told me that, alas, you know, Baudot's mother was waiting up for her, so he just dropped her off at the door uh, and and went on and went on home. Violet's nephew told me that I think it was maybe nineteen sixty-two, maybe I can't remember now. Uh, I have it in my book though that uh, Violet and Charlie they got they they split up. But they, they still remain friends, and I'm not sure I'm not, I can't remember now if they even got divorced. But they remained friends, and they they had Thanksgiving dinner at uh, the nephew's home uh, in in uh, uh, I believe it was Las Vegas. And uh, the nephew, his name was Mark Preston, and uh, his parents and uh, and Violet and and Charlie. And at the at the dinner table on Thanksgiving day day, Violet announced to the table that she and Charlie had spent the afternoon sunbathing nude. Uh, and, uh, and the nephew told me that, uh, you know, Charlie got embarrassed. My father got angry and words went flying <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> and everything. But, uh, anyway, she, she, uh, died in two thousand. She was buried in, uh, in, uh, in a cemetery, uh, in, in Los Angeles. She was 88 years old, the same as when, when, when Billy died and, and, uh, she spent her, year, her final years in a nursing home and she regaled the, the staff with tales about her showgirl past. And I get into this in my book too. You know, like Bob at the Hotel Carlos, I talk about the Hotel Carlos, was uh, was on 3834 Ness Sheffield. It had its own share of uh, tough times. The Cubs historian, Ed Hartig, said that it was uh, it was became a real dive. He used to walk, he continues to walk past it on his way to work every day. And, uh, it gradually became one of those, what's called SRO, single room occupancy homes, where you could buy, a uh, rent a room for the day, the week, or the month. And he said that people would cross the street when they had to cross by it. Uh, and over the years, it, it gradually fell into disrepair. A real estate company purchased the hotel and remodeled it and renamed it as the 3834 North Sheffield. And it called it, on his webpage, calls it the, the once hip apartment hotel for cub players. And it, and it now provides studio apartments for upscale professionals. In fact, I have a few, a couple of pictures of it uh, in my book that a, a researcher friend of mine uh, took for me in Chicago. So it really, really looks nice. Uh, rents aren't too expensive either.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It, it's such a crazy time in Chicago history when this shooting occurred. Al Capone ha- had had his tax evasion trial less than a year earlier. He started serving his sentence in in May of 1932. Prohibition would soon be repealed. The city was getting ready for the World's Fair. And less than a year after the shooting, the mayor of Chicago would be assassinated in Miami. Anton Cermak. What a wild time to be a resident of Chicago.
2: Well, and also you have the whole depression, you know, unemployment rates uh, soared past 20%, as I recall, and uh, the game attendance was plummeting at that time. Uh, I think the average player salary I mentioned in my book was 7500 in 1929, and that was slid to about $6,000 in 1933. And by 1939, it climbed back up, but not to where it was before. I yeah. think I mentioned that a, a, an industrial worker made just $1,421 in 1929. So ball players were 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 paid rather well. Uh, some of them did not want to sign their contracts, but I know Billy did because he recognized he was he was doing rather well at that time.
0: Franklin Roosevelt, right? Uh, FDR, he he was there and watched the game.
2: Yes. He was in the stands for the called shot. He, he certainly was. Uh, he certainly was in the stands on the called shot. And I think he said something like, uh, "Oh, he was laughing, I know, uh, as Babe Ruth rounded the base. He got the biggest kick out of it. I was going to say that he said something like, you lucky, lucky dog. But I think that was Babe Ruth said that himself as he was rounding the bases, you lucky, lucky dog, just laughing at the Cubs and pointing at them and everything. That really thoroughly took the wind out of their sails, that home run. Interestingly enough, side an aside, uh, you know, I talk about the, the baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was uh, a very autocratic baseball commissioner at that time. In fact, he called, I think it was Guy Bush, uh, into his office to talk about the division of the of the uh, of the player World Series bonuses. They got a share of the World Series cut, and 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 Guy Bush explained why they did it that way. And 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 kind of Mountain Landis, you know, kind of nodded his head and said he understood and everything. But anyway, he was in the stands at that game, and uh, his nephew—I think it was his nephew—was in the stands with him at that t- time. And interestingly enough, the nephew's son was one of my students at the University of Mary Washington, and he oh, and I got into a discussion about this. In fact, I called him a, about a few weeks ago, and uh, the son was interviewed by wire services, the New York Times. And he steadfastly maintained, I was there, I saw it, and uh, he ac- absolutely did point. I maintain that it, it also depended upon where you were sitting. And uh, one Cubs historian says, and I, know, I know I don't have the quotation right, but he said something like, uh, I know of, uh, uh, of a Catholic priest who was on the third base side, and he swore that that Babe Ruth pointed, but my father was on the first base side, and he swore that he was pointing to the uh, uh, to the cub's dugout. and he said, "Well, who do you believe your father or your or your priest?" And, and a lot of people said that, you know, it depends on where you were sitting, but anyway the the nephew and the nephew's son swear that you know, I was there, I saw it, and uh, he did point.
0: What do you think do you think Babe Ruth pointed in in the direction of his home run?
2: To be quite honest, Eric, I do not think he would. And and not just from any angle or anything like that, but I think Babe Ruth knew that Charlie Root would have just nailed him if he had done that. And I later... You know, came across a quotation from Babe Ruth when he said that, when I said before that, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, who do you think I am, an idiot for doing something like that? And especially when I came across all these New York Yankee people, what was it, Frankie Crosetti? I think, there was an obituary of Frankie Crosetti, and he's quoted as telling people years later, and of course he didn't point. We just knew it was going to make a good story, so we just went along with it, you know. So I can't help but think he didn't. But I'm I'm not gonna go to the grave maintaining that because I don't I don't think it really matters at all because I think only, you know, someone like Babe Booth could have could have could have pulled that off. The the books on the call shot, I think one of them, I can't remember which one, but they go into graphic detail, but newspaper column by newspaper column pointing out, you know, what Which, what they say, how many fingers he held up, you know, what did he mean that it was only two strikes or only have one strike left, you know, point by point by point, breaking it all down. And even that there's some, I think there are two movies, homegrown movies of the call shot. And, um, Bay Booth biographer, I can't remember which one it was, but he maintains in his book that you can't really tell anything conclusively due to the angle. And he and the biographer makes no claim either one way or the other. But he also says it doesn't really matter anyway. But I I personally don't think he did. but uh, again, I, will probably, I won't quarrel with people who said that they, that they think he, that he did point. And God knows there are plenty of people, Chicago Cubs players at that time, who said that, they, that he did indeed point. I have a, uh, on, my power, on a PowerPoint that I made, I have a picture of a signed baseball pub by Woody English. And it's signed, uh, I, was at, I was at the game. Babe Ruth did not point. Point, which is kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, the other big mystery in your book, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did yeah. Violet really enter Jurgis's apartment with the intent to kill him, or only herself?
2: I'm so glad you brought that up because I would have forgotten to mention that. Yes, I, and I do I that. Okay, remember now. Let's set the stage here, Eric. Okay, back at that time, Violet said in an interview, you know, well, no, first off, she wrote that letter saying, uh, life without Billy isn't worth living, but why should I leave this earth alone? I'm going to take Billy with me. Okay. (laughs) That implies that she's got murder on her mind. But she later said that the shooting was the result of, quote, too much gin. This was in an article in the Chicago Daily Tribune. In fact, I think too much gin is the headline of the article. And she said, I only wanted to shoot myself to make Billy sorry for breaking up with me. So I extensively interviewed two of Violet's nephews, and uh, uh, one of them, Mark Preston, and I had this in my book. He said he was there when Violet was talking to her sister-in-law, and they were talking about the shooting. And Violet told her sister-in-law, Mark's mother, that she did indeed go to Billy's room, knock on the door, and go there with the principal purpose of shooting him as she said to his sister-in-law quote i was very angry and i wanted to kill him unquote oh wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: <clears throat> it, it's it's cool that that some information was later revealed that could shed a bit more light on in, in, in
2: essence, Eric, you know, I, had a, I had a great time you know, writing writing all this. You know, again, I immersed myself in the original sources. I camped out at the library during our vacations. You know, I had a hot plate there. I had my slippers and everything. <laughs> I had a, my, uh, a tape player, a uh, cassette player, uh, or CD player, whatever. It was a long time ago. Whatever it had. was before, cell phones. The library staff made sure the microphone reader printers were working well. So I had the best time. In fact, the book is dedicated to a quote, all my friends at the University of Mary, Washington. Just a supportive group of people behind me.
0: What a great experience. And you have a website.
2: Yes, WrigleyIvy.com. Yes. uh I have not updated it recently. I've been kind of busy with other things, but uh, that's one thing I want to get back to. Again, uh, uh, get back and writing more about uh, the Cubs history on it. In fact, uh, I've had a couple comments there. Some Cubs players have posted comments on it. In fact, so it gets it gets a lot of hits. I'm surprised at how many hits it gets. You know,
0: oh, that's awesome. And your book is available to purchase. Pretty much sold. Yes,
2: and uh, in fact, uh, you get it on Amazon. I saw it when I was I flew home to give a talk at the Quincy Historical Society. I walked into the O'Hare Airport bookstore and I saw it there. Uh, I wanted to sign the copies, but the person at the desk said that that she would need permission from the owner. So I and (laughs) The owner wasn't there. I want to say, come on, I'll sign your books for you. But she said, no. Uh, Speaking of that, though, um, my name is Jack Bales, B-A-L-E-S, as in Bales of Hay. And anyone, I had professional book plates made up that feature an image of the book. And if anybody buys the book and wants a signed book plate for it, again, it features an image of the book cover on it, just email me at jbales, B-A-L-E-S, at u m Edu that stands for University of Mary, Washington, and I'll, and I'll be glad to send them, you know, no charge at all, a signed book plate uh, for their copy of the book, jbales at umw.edu.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah. Th- that's neat. Well, well, this has been great fun. Thanks for, for taking some time to tell us about this obscure but, but fascinating story.
2: Oh, I really appreciate it because it's just a, a great time. It made, it's made my week here, you know. I can love talking about the book again. It's just a great story, you know. You can't make this stuff up. In fact, I think I told an interview one time. You know, it's got uh, the book has got uh, uh, sex. It's got a burlesque show. It's got stolen love letters. And oh yeah, it's got baseball too. You know, you know what else is there? You know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's got great photographs, too. Nice, glossy photographs. They they did a good job with it, you know.
0: Yeah, some great photographs in there.
2: I think on Amazon, it's only $17.50 on Amazon.
0: Well, well, perfect. Thanks again.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Eric. Again, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I really appreciate being being on your show.
0: Again, I have been speaking to Jack Bales. His book is called The Chicago Cub Shot for Love, a showgirl's crime of passion and the 1932 World Series. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.